Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Inspired Church family, welcome back. I am excited. I've been eager to begin this new sermon series through the book of Daniel. And before we actually jump into the text in chapter one, I just want to give you a bit of an overview of the book. When it comes to the book of Daniel, scholars are divided. Is it history? Uh, is it prophecy? Uh, does the book of Daniel, the genre of Daniel, belong in the historical books in the Old Testament? Or does the genre of Daniel uh, better categorize in what it's called the apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament? Now, I know the word apocalypse might uh, scare some people, but really apocalypse just simply means the unveiling, the revealing of something that's hidden. Um, aside from the scholars, there is a group of other individuals that I would say are caught up in a kind of eschatomania. In fact, not to be rude, but I would probably call them eschatomaniacs. They, they love to uh, place a hyper-emphasis on the visions and dreams of Daniel. And you can catch them with their charts and their timelines and their graphics and their cherry-picking current news events and trying to apply it to the prophetic visions of Daniel. These guys are what I like to call anti-Christ hunters, you know, Middle East watchers. Uh, they, all they want to do is try and take these events and try to make something out of them that the Bible isn't really trying to say. And just by way of pastoral caution to all of you that are watching today, wherever you're at, wherever you're listening, may I just submit this word of caution to you. We must be careful that we do not entertain human speculation posing as biblical revelation. Let me say that again for some of you that I believe really need to hear this. We must be careful. We must be alert and vigilant, especially in these times. Uh, uh, we must be careful not to entertain human speculation posing as biblical revelation. Listen, it's unfortunate, but when the gospel is no longer kept at the center, it becomes easier to be seduced by end times conspiracy theories. It's almost as if the Bible isn't exciting enough, the cross of Christ isn't glorious enough, that we need to go above and beyond what the scriptures have provided just to find a kind of high or sense of security as we experience what's taking place in our surroundings. And I want to say this again, it's unfortunate, but when the gospel is not centered, it becomes easy for you to be seduced by end times conspiracy theories. So with all due respect to the scholars and with all due respect to those well-meaning seekers, the primary purpose of our next 12 weeks through the book of Daniel will not be history. It will not be prophecy, but it will be practicality. It will not be history, it will not be prophecy, but practicality. After all, 
What good is it to accumulate for yourself all of the academic knowledge in the world? What good is it if you can master the linguistic arts of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek? Or, or what, good is it, what good is it if you are a prayer warrior that can spiritually discern the mysteries of the prophetic nature of the Word of God? What good is it if you can do those things? But you don't look like Jesus. You don't talk like Jesus. You don't love like Jesus. You don't live like Jesus. You don't walk like Jesus. If you don't look like Jesus, then all of that stuff is just simply empty knowledge and dead, good for nothing religion. So if I had to summarize the next 12 weeks, if I had to put the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel in just one sentence, I would put it like this. Living in Babylon without looking like Babylon. For the next 12 weeks, we're gonna talk about living in Babylon without looking like Babylon. Daniel chapter one. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashephanes, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylonia as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azirah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azirah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat his food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azirah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating food, the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. 
God gave these four young men unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel special abilities to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Isaiah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. What an amazing yet tragic opening to the book of Daniel. And my desire today is to set the tone, to set the stage for the entire story. I hope you plan to be with us for the next 12 or so weeks as we read through the scriptures and travel together on this amazing journey that has really started off very traumatically. And so today my desire is to retell the traumatic story of chapter one and then to answer the question, how was Daniel and his boys able to live in Babylon without looking like Babylon? And if I have some time at the end, I may geek out on the Mandalorian, so I will keep you posted if I have time. But I want to tell this story of chapter one in three acts. And if you're taking notes, uh, I'll give you the acts up front so that you have an idea of the direction that we are headed. Uh, Act number one, Jerusalem, the city, is besieged. Act number two, the temple is robbed. And act number three, the people are exiled. Act one. In verse 1, as Pastor Sherry so eloquently read, uh, you'll see we are told that Jerusalem was besieged by King Nebuchadnezzar and the mighty, formidable Babylonian Empire. Now, I want to describe to you the cruel nature of a siege. Now, all warfare is cruel at some level, but specifically the tactic of sieging a city is a especially cruel. You see, the goal or the strategy of a siege was to quite literally suffocate the city into submission. The idea of Babylon sieging Jerusalem was that Babylon did not invade the city. They simply surrounded the city, choking Jerusalem off from much needed resources, supplies, and reinforcements. Now, while you were in that city being sieged, you would experience some incredible horrors. First of all, if starvation didn't kill you, then the lack of sanitation would. What do I mean by that? As the supplies were being cut off and the steady stream of ingoing supplies and outgoing supplies were cut off from the outside, the people in the city would slowly begin to starve to death. The death toll would begin to mount with those most vulnerable like infant, children, and the elderly. They would begin to succumb to starvation as their bodies weakened. Now, 
of course, with no way out of the city and bodies piling up, there was no place to put these bodies. Can you imagine the horrible scene, the horrible smell as bodies began to stack up on the streets because there was no place to bury them, burn them, or place them? And again, if starvation didn't kill you, the lack of sanitation would because those bodies would begin to attract disease-riddled rodents and disease-riddled bacteria. And before long, uh, the city would look like kind of an ancient zombie apocalypse. This once beautiful, thriving city of David, Jerusalem, was now uh, 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 just a wasteland full of criminals, scavengers, and those desperate simply to survive another day. What a horrible place to be, imprisoned in your own neighborhood, in your own home, in your own country, in your own city. And really what would happen in these sieges is that at some point the enemy from within would become way more frightening than the enemy from without. And ultimately, Jerusalem would surrender and allow the Babylonians to come in. And in Act 2, we're told that this is exactly what happened. In verse 2, the Babylonians get in the city, and Daniel includes a special detail when he tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar robbed the temple, taking from the temple some vessels from the house of God and bringing them into the treasury of his own idols. Now, I remember visiting a friend's church in the hood. It was a really rough particular part of a neighborhood. And as I was driving in to speak at this church, I noticed that there was graffiti everywhere. I mean, nothing was off limits to these graffiti artists. Uh, the graffiti was on the stores. Graffiti was on the walls, the sidewalks. Even the homes in this neighborhood were full of graffiti. But as I pulled up to the church, I noticed that the church was spotless. There was no graffiti on any wall in any place. And I remember looking at my friend and asking him, you must clean the church up often. And to my surprise, he replied, we never clean the church. It turns out that in that neighborhood, there was some kind of unspoken rule, some unspoken code that everything could be graffitied, but not the house of God. I remember another story. I was in a youth group and there was a young man who was in youth group with me and he would actually sell marijuana after youth group. And I remember watching him after church one night. He stepped out of the church. He walked across the street. And then I remember seeing kids from the church walk across the street to purchase weed from this young man. And he would do this almost every week. And so one day I got enough, uh, I got a little brave and I asked him, look, why do you go across the street to sell weed to kids in the church? It was really interesting. He looked at me kind of crazy. He's like, I would never disrespect this property. I would never disrespect the house of God like that. Now, 
as misguided as that was, I mean, honestly, he was selling marijuana to church kids inside of him somewhere, deeply ingrained as, again, misconstrued and misguided as it was, was a restraint, right? Some kind of uh, fear of God that he would not want to defile the house of God. And so he went across the street to do what he had to do. You see, when it came to King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, because they had uh, no knowledge of the God of Israel, there was nothing holding them back when it came to tormenting God's people and robbing God's house. Act three, the city was besieged. The temple was robbed in verses one and two, and now in verses three through seven, the first wave of Jewish exiles were taken into Babylonian captivity. Now, despite what you might think, this was not just an act of random selection. They just didn't go and say, pick a number and we'll take you into exile. The scripture explicitly describes who was taken by the Babylonians first. And the scripture tells us that they were royalty, they were nobility, they were educated. Now watch, teenage boys. Wow. Daniel and his homies were probably no more than 13 to 16 years of age when they were forced from their homes and brought captive, exiled in a foreign land. Like, let that sink in for a minute. Teenage boys. Maybe you have a teenager at home. Maybe you have a child at home that you care about, that you love. 13 to 16, possibly 17. Taken from their homes never to see their families again, carried as slaves, captivity, exiled in a foreign land. Now, there's no doubt that this traumatic experience, Acts 1, 2, and 3, caused inside of the exiles, raised questions inside of these young boys, maybe placed doubt in them. And these questions that began to rise inside of them were both theological questions and practical questions. Theological questions like, where is God? Where are you, God? And it's really crazy because I want you to think about it. It's always in our darkest moments, right? It's always in our most darkest hours that our theology, what we know to be true about God, is tested in fire. And I can hear the exiles. I can hear the teenage boys just wondering, God, are you really all good? Because this is really all bad. God, are you really all powerful? Like, I know your word says, you are all powerful, but if you were all powerful, how could you let your people be taken and how could you let your house be desecrated? But there's something really remarkable that Daniel writes in verse two. And if you're moving fast through the text, you'll skip right over it. In spite of all of this possible theological turmoil inside of the exiles, Daniel, while writing and recounting this, tra this tragic story, Daniel notes in verse 2, who is really in control. 
He says, and God gave into his hands. Daniel, thinking back about this tragic story, writes, and God gave into his hands. Hands. Now, if you don't know what that means, you might just look at this script, this page with a blank stare, but this will blow your mind. This is so incredible. Here we see from the mind of the victim himself, Daniel. Daniel wants you to know. Daniel wants me to know. Daniel wants us to know. It may look like this was King Nebuchadnezzar's doing. It may look like this was Babylon's doing, but behind all of this was the sound sovereign hand of God and God gave and God gave into his hands. This was not a defeat. This wasn't a defenseless, powerless God. God had allowed this to take place. Now, listen, this is a little scary. This isn't going to fit in your pretty Americanized Christian box, but hear me out. What you might be experiencing right now as a living hell might be exactly where God wants you to be. I said it wasn't going to be pretty, and it's certainly not going to fit in our Americanized version of Christianity, but just maybe what you might be experiencing right now as a living hell might be exactly where God has designed you to be. Because as we read the story, there's favor there. There's destiny there. There's sanctification there. There's purpose there. But remember this, favor, destiny, sanctification, and purpose are not for securing your safety or your comfort, but they are there for demonstrating God's glory. And so you may not be in a place that you want to be, but you just might be in a place where God wants you to be, not for your comfort, not for your safety or security, but for God's ultimate glory. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, this is why you were brought into Babylon. Your teenage lives will bring much glory to God. But the practical question that follows the theological question is how? How? God, how? How am I, Daniel, how are my boys gonna bring you glory? And the simple answer is this, are you ready? How is Daniel gonna bring glory to God? By living in Babylon without looking like Babylon. By living in Babylon without looking like Babylon. Now, I want to describe to you what that looks like. What does it look like to live in Babylon without looking like Babylon? But before I tell you what it is, let me tell you what it is not. Number one, if you're taking notes, here is what it is not. Living in Babylon without looking like Babylon is not total assimilation. Total assimilation. 
You see, Daniel could have reasoned, God, you abandoned me. Or he could have just said altogether, God, you do not exist after everything I've experienced. So I might as well just compromise. I might as well just go with the flow. I mean, there's no temple. There's no place to worship. I've been removed from my homeland. I mean, when in Babylon, do what the Babylonians do. Can I just say this? This is exactly what the Babylonians want. That was part of their tactic when they conquest and invaded a city. They would remove from the city the youngest, the smartest, the brightest, and they would seek to assimilate them into Babylonian culture, to divorce them from their culture and bring them into Babylonian culture. Listen, this is exactly what Babylon wants, but hear me out and make note of this. It doesn't just want to uproot you from your tradition. It wants you to exchange Exchange your loyalty for God and his word to loyalty to Babylon and its idols. This isn't just a matter of tradition. It's a matter of worship. Babylon wants their worship. Babylon, Babylon wants their total surrender. It's not total assimilation. If you are going to live in Babylon and not look like Babylonians, it's not going to be by total assimilation. You see, we live in a post-Christian, post-modern society. We live in a post-Christian society that calls God's word archaic, old-fashioned patriarchy. We live in a society that labels the orthodox teachings of scriptures as extreme and fundamentalist. A, a progressive Christianity that tries to make God's word more likable, acceptable, palatable, ex inclusive. But listen, there are still those, amen, there are still those who are refusing to assimilate there are those who are refusing to compromise because they know if the salt loses its flavor and if the lamp is hidden under a basket, it'll no longer retain its ability to light up the room or season the food. I feel like I got to say that again because some of you went to get coffee. Listen, there are still those that are living in a godless culture that understand that they themselves will not bow their knees to idols will not bow their knees to this kind of rhetoric. Why? Why are there still people of God looking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, living like Jesus in a godless world? Because they know that if the salt loses its flavor and if the lamp is hidden under a basket, it'll no longer retain its ability to light up the house or season the food. We may be living in a kind of Babylon but it most certainly doesn't mean that we have to look like Babylon. What it is not, it's not total assimilation. Number two, it's not total rebellion. You see, this opposite extreme is equally destructive and manifests itself in, in, in both an aggressive and passive way. What does it mean to live in Babylon and to be in total rebellion? Well, there's an aggressive way to manifest this and there is a passive way to manifest this and it may feel or seem like right, but it is equally destructive as assimilation. 
You see, the more aggressive way to live this kind of rebellion out, to be a rebel, is to live like the zealots in the time of Christ in the Gospels. I don't know if you remember the zealots, but they hated Rome. Rome was the occupying force over Jerusalem. And so they believed it was their God-given duty to literally kill Roman soldiers. These rebels were convinced that they were in some kind of a holy war. They claimed Christ by any means necessary, including hurting and harming others. Now we see this all the time, extremism, people bombing, people shooting, terrorizing, killing. I remember hearing stories about Christians blowing up abortion clinics, these radicals. And long time ago, we used to think, man, those are extreme. But I have to tell you that the extremes that used to be on the fringes, I'm starting to see in everyday Christian verbiage and everyday Christian actions. You can spot this kind of aggressive, rebellious approach to Babylon by the way that Christians, some Christian nationalists, love to quote the Second Amendment as if it's a biblical commandment. Now, let me say this. I'm not here to make this a political discussion. I love to shoot guns, but I don't think Jesus Christ wants you to be walking around championing weapons that kill folks instead of spreading the gospel that saves folks. Listen, I'm all about shooting your guns wherever you want to take it and shoot it, but you can spot this kind of rebellious behavior in Babylon, in our culture, when, pe when people begin to preach the Second Amendment like it's a biblical commandment. Another aggressive form of rebellion in Babylon Another aggressive way that I see is some people that I consider to be crusaders. They may not be extreme with their actions, but they're certainly violent and extreme with their words. Now, if you don't believe me, just go on Facebook. Maybe it's some of your Facebook. Maybe after this message today, some of y'all need to go back and erase some of the memes you post up, some of the things you say. Some of you Christians are the most insensitive people that I've ever seen in my life. In fact, you're, you're so insensitive, you like to hide behind a keyboard and post crazy things up. And when I see you in person, it's all love and God bless you. Listen, we need to be sanctified, not just in our personal lives, but in our social media lives. It's getting ridiculous. You may not be violent with your actions, but your deeds, your, I mean, your words are insensitive they're violent sometimes I can I see these culture warriors and I I call them keyboard crusaders you know what I'm talking about they love to demonize unbelievers and and they especially love to point out the speck in their brother's eye while ignoring the log in their own Finally, there's another growing trend that I see that what I would consider to be a more passive form of rebellion in Babylon is something that I'm calling Christian escapism. I remember meeting a gentleman who was a leader of a church in the mountains about three, four hours away. I remember doing an event or a conference in these mountains and I asked the story of the church. I wanted to know the church's history. And it turns out that that church was planted in San Francisco and had a beautiful vision and mission to reach the city for Jesus. But one of its leaders had a dream one night and believed that the Antichrist was coming 
and that the church needed to flee the city, go to the mountains, become self-sustaining, grow its own food, and kind of hide there in a holy huddle until Jesus came back again. These things used to be on the fringes, right? It used to be kind of weird, but this kind of subtlety is creeping back into Christianity. Christians fleeing the city because of how godless and how evil it is. And I don't want my children to be raised in those areas. Now listen, I have to be careful. I want you to hear my heart. There's no, there's nothing wrong with you wanting to move. Bay Area prices are expensive. It can get really ugly out here. I get it. But I really want to speak to that spirit of rebellion. I really want to speak to that element that is deserting an area because it's demonic or evil. The last time I checked the great commandment, Jesus said to go, not flee. Can you imagine if Daniel did that in Babylon? Could you imagine if Daniel told God, you know what, I'm not going to be in Babylon. I'm going to go and leave and live in the outskirts. But that wasn't the plan for Daniel. Hear my heart. Escaping Babylon was certainly not the plan God had for these boys. They were not called to assimilate, isolate, or rebel, but they were called to live as kingdom citizens, seeking the welfare of the city while remaining faithful to the word of God. I want to say that again. What it's not, being in Babylon without looking like Babylon, it is not assimilation or compromise. It is not isolation or rebellion. But here, here's what it is. Are you ready? It's living as a kingdom citizen by seeking the welfare of the city and remaining faithful to God's word. How was Daniel and his homies able to accomplish all of this? By knowing what to say yes to and knowing what to say no to. If you read the story, Daniel said yes to new names, right? Names of Babylonian gods. I could just hear the fundamentalists and the culture warriors complaining about Daniel. Oh my gosh, how dare he take on those pagan names? They didn't just say yes to Babylonian names, but they also said yes to government jobs. Daniel worked in a, an administration of the king. In fact, you'll see as the story unfolds, he'll be a, a prized advisor to the administration of the king. He'll seek the welfare of Babylon. I could just imagine there they are again. How dare Daniel work for a demonic government that steals land and takes lives? Know this, even though Daniel honored the king and worked for the good of his administration, Daniel never compromised his fidelity to the word of God. They said yes to new names. They said yes to government positions. They even said yes to attending secular university. You see, Daniel, as a teenager, went from a private school in a Jewish community to the global university of Babylon. And, and, and this makes me wonder. I got a question for all the parents out there that are watching today. How are you preparing your teenagers to navigate this world? I mean, think about it. Every morning they wake up and step into Babylon on their phones, Babylon, in their schools, Babylon, with their friends, Babylon. How parents? 
Prince, are you exemplifying what it means to be faithful to God's word? How, parents, are you telling and retelling them the stories of the goodness of God in your life? Or are you just passing that responsibility on to kids' ministry? Let that sting for a little bit. And I have a feeling some of your children aren't prepared for Babylon because you're not prepared for Babylon. But can you imagine Daniel and his boys, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, removed from their home permanently, brought to the University of Babylon in a foreign land, refusing to bow to their idols and staying faithful to the word of God. I wish we had some teenagers that we would be confident and capable of knowing that if they were to leave our houses forever, that they wouldn't turn away from their God. Wow. Of all the things that these boys said yes to, the one thing they said no to was the king's food. That's an odd thing to say no. I mean, I want food. <laughs> I'm not going to say no to food. I mean, I, I'm going to say no to the names. I'm going to say no to the government job. But man, you will bring me some food. I want the food. But out of all the things they said yes to, they said no to the food. Why? What was it about? I mean, it certainly must have been enticing and tasty. This was the king's food, y'all. And, and it was probably tempting and inviting to celebrate the perks of being inside of the, the courts of the king. Why did they say no to the food of the king? See, Daniel and his boys refused to violate God's law concerning unclean food, concerning food dedicated to idols. And I want you to know this wasn't just about food or wine, but about faithfulness and worship. These teenage boys respected fully, yet courageously set the tone for the rest of their time in Babylon. They were willing to live in Babylon without looking like Babylon by knowing what to say yes to and knowing what to say no to because they knew the word of God and their faithfulness to God and their fidelity to his word was more important than the idolatry, the luxury, and the pleasures of Babylon. This is the way. We're calling the next 12 weeks exiled. This is the way. And... If that reminds you of The Mandalorian and Disney Plus, you're absolutely right. But did you know that the early believers, the early follower of Christ, also called themselves followers of the way? Now, when you think about The Mandalorian, what was the way? Well, the way was a code of life. It was a rule. It was an ethics. It was a creed. Every time a Mandalorian would see one another, they would know what the way was. In fact, I did. I geeked out a little bit. I, I looked at Wikipedia and I hit up my friend Aira, who gave me some ideas about the Mandalorian culture. And I was curious about what that creed was. What does it mean when the Mandalorian says this is the way? Now, there's not a lot of writings about this, but there are three codes and creeds that they followed. Number one seeking justice through single combat this is the way following through when a deal is made this is the way and for some clans of Mandalorians never to remove their helmet and reveal their face to any living creature that was the way now the same could be said for Christians except it wasn't a creed it wasn't a code but it was a person in Jesus Christ for the early believers 
Following the way meant living a lifestyle that looked like Jesus, even if that lifestyle invited persecution, resisted temptation, denied pleasure, or made them a cultural outcast. What in the world would motivate anyone to live in a way that would invite persecution, deny pleasure, and make you a cultural outcast? Well, the book of Daniel will answer that question. We serve a God who is in total control. One day, all of his enemies, all empires, all worldly pleasures will pale in comparison to the everlasting kingdom of God. This is the book of Daniel, and this is the way. Living in Babylon without looking like Babylon. I hope you join us next week as we continue our journey. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspire Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.